its Innovation Station initiative, the Secretary's Office of Global Women's Issues at the U.S. Department of State is amplifying women and girls developing solutions to global challenges and helping them connect with new communities that could benefit from their work. Today, you'll meet a few of those innovators as they explain their game-changing, translatable initiatives in their own words. Welcome to SGWE's Innovation Station. For this panel, we will be turning our attention to another critical component of the landscape, economy, and overall culture of the Pacific Northwest, a terrestrial one. The region's forests have long captivated locals and visitors alike, as we've discussed already today. In fact, if there's anything the Pacific Northwest is more known for, it might stereotypically be rainfall, uh, which has contributed to the growth and proliferation of these forests that have sustained human civilizations for thousands of years. Indigenous communities, once again, their long-standing relationship with the region's forests, including culturally significant cedar trees, must not be understated. Furthermore, forestry and outdoor tourism remain economically important, and national parks or other protected areas have been established in the hopes of achieving effective conservation. But just as we observed with aquatic ecosystems, the forests of the Pacific Northwest face increasing threats, which, in turn, threatens the well-being of the people who depend on them. As mentioned previously, it is imperative that we acknowledge the increasing frequency and intensity of wildfires devastating this region, other parts of the American West, and other countries in the world. In the Pacific Northwest, wildfires alongside mountain pine beetle or other pest outbreaks are just two exacerbated impacts of climate change that critically harm forests and ignite a chain reaction of negative consequences that include flooding, erosion, loss of water resources, even affecting utilities usage in communities. Addressing these challenges in the US Pacific Northwest, Alabama, Arizona, California, or in countries like Greece or Brazil, Algeria or Australia, requires creative strategies that merge local knowledge and innovative techniques. So on this panel, our three women innovators will discuss their efforts to help communities sustainably manage forest resources, prevent wildfires, and mitigate climate impacts. Their work engages indigenous and other vulnerable communities and even incorporates training and workforce development. Please join me in welcoming our panelists, Laura Lines, President of the Resilience Institute, Amanda Parrish, Executive Director of the Lands Council, and Karen Bossen, advisor to the Cruise Green Valley Project. So, Laura, I'm gonna to turn to you first. I'm hoping you can give us a brief introduction to the work of the Resilience Institute, and you can get started, and I will bring up your slides right now. Thank you so much. And we just really appreciate this opportunity and to be on a panel with some amazing women. Um, though we have a network that spans a lot of places in the world, the Resilience Institute's headquarters is located in a place called Canmore in Canada, which is just outside Banff National Park, um, very close to the British Columbia border and the US border. So many of you may be familiar with this. I'm joining you today from Treaty 7 territory, which is home of the Gainai, Bagani, Siksika, um, Sutna, Stony Nakoda First Nations, as well as Metis Nation region number three. So the Resilience Institute, um, it's just a little bit of our, our background. Our background is I'm a co-founder with a scientist who 
is a uh, renowned glaciologist actually and over many conversations and hikes in the alpine we realized that there was a massive disconnect between the science that was happening and the on the ground action this is not new information to anyone who works in these fields um, so we decided we wanted to create something that was nimble, that could bring together science with multiple ways of knowing and do actual on the ground community work as well as work with industry or really anyone who will work with us um, in ways that wove that they're really interesting and, and actually, I think, important technology and science that is being developed together with local and community innovations. So we're charitable. Um, we say our mission is to co-create a climate resilient future, reduce risk to disasters. We use participatory and transdisciplinary methods. Um, some of our initiatives are framed as research, but most of them aren't. Most of them are actually just projects that we come together and co-create. We have a network of experts across Canada, the US, South Africa, some in Europe. And I guess one of the things we're known for is we're really trying to weave Indigenous and other ways of knowing. I mean, there's also rural and non-Indigenous local ways of knowing into all of the work that we do and collaborate with um, NGOs, government, industry. And we like to work through some of the signature activities that you saw in the previous slide. So there's um, stories of resilience, uh, fire with fire, and we'll go over some more of those maybe later in the discussion. One of the big activities that we're still working on right now, which is involves national and subnational governments, as well as four First Nations across the uh, province that we're in is called fire with fire. We're actually using creative methods as well as um, local fire burning methods to really tease out what are those indigenous ways of looking at fire and how can we get more people understanding what this might look like in, in, in changing fire regi regimes. So um, it's probably good for my three minutes and we'll go through some of this more um, surely in, in the panel. But really what's driving us is climate change is a wicked challenge and technology alone isn't going to fix it. When we say words like transformative, what does that mean? And we take that to mean as really trying to bring in other values besides science into the work that we do. And thank you so much. Thank you, Laura. That was fantastic. I'm now going to turn to Amanda and ask you to please introduce us to your organization, the Lands Council. Well, thank you. Um, yeah, we're the Lands Council is based in Spokane, Washington. Um, that's east of the Cascades, so slightly less rainfall on this side of the mountains. Um, our mission is to preserve and revitalize the inland Northwest's forests, water, and wildlife. Um, our, our group formed back in 1983 with a focus on protecting the many public lands that we have in our region. Um, and back then, this is really that, that was the era of clear cuts in the forest. And so we were formed by a group of local physicians that um, wanted to oppose really the timber industry and, and what they saw happening in our forests and public spaces. And so um, we you know, were involved in a lot of litigation in the early days and, and then really transformed our, um, 
our means of carrying out our mission by becoming a more collaborative organization. And so we were instrumental in forming some of the country's first uh, forest collaborative groups. The Northeast Washington Forest Collaborative is, um, I think, one of the first of its kind in the country. And um, now we have the timber industry and the Forest Service, um, conservation, environmental groups, uh, local tribes, rural landowners, all coming to the table together to find mutually respectful solutions um, in terms of land management. And so I joined the Lands Council back in 2009, and today I serve as the executive director. Um, after studying environmental science at the University of San Francisco, I, I moved to the Inland Northwest so that I could have more opportunities to connect with natural spaces that we have so, so many beautiful natural spaces here in the Great Northwest. Um, and so in this decade that I've been here, I've seen that the Lands Council, we've continued our, our forest work at that policy level, uh, but we've also greatly expanded our collaboration to include a lot of on the ground restoration work. Um, so we plant thousands of trees in streamside riparian areas every year, and we do this to both enhance water quality um, and to, to, to provide and, and, and um, and restore that critical habitat piece. Because in North America, 87% of all wildlife species from, you know, we're talking from pollinator size to, to bears, 87% um, of wildlife species utilize the riparian zone at some point during their life cycle. And yet riparian zones um, or riparian buffers only comprise about 2% of the total landscape in North America. And so it's a really critical type of forest um, to protect and revitalize. And so we are able to achieve our goals by working with a really diverse um, community groups. And we'll touch a little more on that in this panel. Um, Probably something I won't have time to expand on, but one of our more notable collaborators is the uh, beaver, the aquatic rodent that- um, Hope to get there. Famously, <laughs> yeah, yeah uh, famously builds dams. And we um, have done a lot of work to use beavers as agents of restoration. We wanna see beaver created wetlands really um, expand across the Western landscape. Um, and we've also looked at our own backyard here in Spokane and what we can do for the more urban public lands, um, urban public spaces. And so we've developed a partnership where we are now um, working in conjunction with communities to plant street trees as, um, as a means of climate justice in, in a way. And we can talk more about that during this panel, but um, yeah, that's, that's a good overview, I think, of the Lands Council. Thank you so much, Amanda. We'll definitely get to, to more of that in just a few minutes. So for now, I'm going to turn to our last but certainly not least panelist here on this session, and that's Karen. Karen, could you give us an overview of the CREW and its Green Valley Project Initiative? I would love to, thanks. <clears throat> so the CREW, which stands for Concerned Resource and Environmental Workers, is a small nonprofit that has been employing young people in providing access to and caring for nature for the past 30 years. We're a homegrown conservation corps involving primarily ages 18 to 25 in paid work to prevent wildfires, repair damaged ecosystems, <clears throat> build trails, and manage land for climate resilience. We're located in a rural area of Southern California and where we've been coping with record drought and wildfires. So this work is more important than ever. 
In 2020, the crew became, began a multi-year initiative to deepen and widen the involvement of youth down to age 12 in our ecological restoration work. The Green Valley Project is an extremely collaborative undertaking that connects schools, educators, environmental professionals, NGOs, and community members with youth, partnering with them and supporting them in their volunteer leadership in carrying out the repair of our watershed's damaged ecosystems. If you read about GVP, Green Valley Project, on our website, you'll see that we talk in terms of helping tangible plants and animals that are easy to connect with and to care about. We say that the Green Valley Project focuses on helping restore habitat for oak trees, <clears throat> turtles, and pollinators. And of course, while we help these species, we are helping, of course, the entire ecosystem, reducing fire danger, increasing water resilience, and promoting better carbon absorption. In the process, importantly, we are strengthening our bonds with nature and with each other. Green Valley Project empowers the young participants to plan and carry out their own projects with the support of adults. These projects include planting native oak trees to restore our historic oak woodlands, weeding invasive fire-prone vegetation and planting natives to improve creekside habitat, the riparian zone, and designing and planting a network of pollinator corridors. As these youth develop their awareness, knowledge, understanding, skills, and nature vision, like, hey, there's a Quercus lobata. <laughs> they can gain a profound connection to their local ecosystems and to their role as stewards. So our vision is to help develop an entire generation of youth who see taking care of the environment as something they just naturally do in their leisure as well as in their jobs and careers, and who feel empowered and gain the skills to take leadership roles. We're living in an era that some are calling the Anthropocene, reimagining re what it means to live joyfully and productively on the earth in this era is what the crew and the Green Valley Project are all about, growing young leaders from the ground up. Thank you so much, Karen. I'm so excited to get into some of the specific initiatives that you all are working on and the different communities that you're engaging, which I think is really um, one of my favorite parts about this panel that we've assembled here. Um, and I do, once again, have a lot of questions I wanna get through. So I'm gonna say from the get-go, if we can keep our answers uh, to the questions brief, it'll allow us to get through as many as possible and maybe even get to those beavers, Amanda. Um, so I'm gonna start with you, Laura. Um, why has it been important in your work to weave various types and sources of knowledge to build community resilience to climate change, including as it relates to wildfire, uh, prevention? What, what, is, what is the motivation here and, and how has it been important? Thank you for that question. Um, we, I think most people are familiar with the concept of a wicked problem, wicked challenge, which is a challenge that's almost impossible or difficult to solve because of the multiple different layers. And we would define climate change as a wicked challenge at global and local scales and we're already facing unprecedented warming we've seen this costly natural disasters and the vulnerable communities um, are in urgent need of support not just in developing worlds the vulnerable communities in our regions so globally systems need to change locally systems need to change but how can we expect 
transformative change to happen if we continue to try to problem solve with the same lens that we've been using for the last 150 plus years. So we feel we need to fast track transformative change and that one of the routes to doing this is by shifting mindsets of the predominantly colonial outlooks and, and even the predominant way of doing science and implementing projects to more holistic ways of thinking. And the people who truly can teach us this are the people who live closest to the land. So that's why there's a large focus of working with Indigenous people. Um, it's not just Indigenous, it's also local people and innovators. So this is why we feel that um, really making it a priority to learn and to weave these types of ways of knowing into tangible projects and outcomes is critical to the work going forward and especially dealing with disasters like fire regimes and new ways of okay. of looking and perceiving what these risks are it's not just about managing them it's also how do we perceive them and I'm looking forward to talking to you in just a moment about fire with fire in, in more detail. So hold that thought. Um, in the meantime, I'm going to jump to you, Amanda. Um, in your riparian restoration efforts, I know that your organization has engaged hundreds of incarcerated individuals to help you accomplish your goals. So I was wondering if you could tell us a bit about this Green Sleeves program that I believe it's called. Um, and how do these participants gain job relevant skills in the process of helping with your efforts? Yeah, thanks, Aubrey. Um, so we started our Green Safes program as a means of enhancing our regional sort of capacity for restoration. And so um, we, you know, can buy plants from nurseries for our riparian plantings, but that becomes really costly if we want mature plants that have um, roots that can are mature enough to to quickly reach the the water table in the summer and heights that are tall enough to be above the browse zone. That's how we can ensure survival rates of these plants. Um, but to get plants of that size, it's really costly. And so we thought that we could partner with our um, local county jail here where there is a lot of um, room for a plant nursery. And a lot of the plants that we um, are working with the offenders to grow are not commercially viable in a nursery. And so it's not out competing um, what a nursery would provide. These are these are native species, maybe even willows that are collected in the wilds that we are trying to root um, there at the nursery. And so we you know not only need to teach these folks how to care for these plants but we want to um, bring some job skills to this and so uh, we teach a curriculum called roots of success which is um, an environmental literacy curriculum um, it's designed not only to teach sort of basic concepts around environmental science or restoration, but to also teach basic um, job interview skills along the way. And we, you know, partnered and asked a lot of our local landscaping firms, um, would you, you know, work with us and hire on some of these folks on your crews once they've completed their time at the Corrections Consent Center, once they've completed this course with us. Um, and so a few of these folks have gone on to have seasonal jobs with local landscaping companies. In addition to that, um, we work with the crews to do some of our public plantings. And so we, we want to take these folks to public parks where they can come back and return to the space that they planted a tree 
while they were um you know serving time and i think the, the the criminal justice reform is something that we could discuss in a different panel and is not for the space and so this is not an endorsement of of that system but it is a means of trying to connect on a human level and look at these people in our community and say um we all get something out of giving back to our community there's there's some some joy to that type of altruism that we that we can carry with us and um we want to give that opportunity to the folks that are helping us grow the trees for our restoration and so take them to places where they can return and and, and show um their families where they were part of this restoration effort that's that's such a cool program thank you so much for sharing that um, I'm going to turn now to you, Karen, and talk about a different group of, of individuals that can be engaged in this space, as you mentioned, youth populations. Um, so from the crew's perspective, why is it important to engage youth populations in ecosystem, ecosystem restoration, environmental stewardship, and related workforce training experiences? I think this is a really interesting area to talk about. It's not just about caring because they care, but there's also a pragmatic space here mm -hmm. when it comes to workforce development. Sure. Well, um, research shows that the roles that we play as teenagers and the habits of thought that we lay down at that age contribute very powerfully to who we are and who we become and what we do for the rest of our lives. So teens need a sense of belonging. They need to turn outward from their families to their communities. They need to be supported by the community as they learn about or find and learn about their passions. So um, what we're doing is we are committed to getting teens outside, getting them away from screens, helping them fall in love with nature and literally gain their nature vision. And um, I have an example of that. The other day I had a group of teens and we were looking at a, a coast live oak native to our area, a very old one, touching its bark, look, really looking at it. And then I asked those teens to look around and see if they saw other, you know, the, the, the great grandchildren, grandchildren, children of this tree. And they stood there and they looked at a complete forest of coast live oaks, but they didn't even see it until it took until for, I started describing it and they looked and they looked and then they saw these trees. And once they've seen, really seen these trees, they will develop a, a relationship with them that could serve them and the forest for the rest of, you know, for the rest of their lives. So it's very important for um, young people to have something that they that they care about, that they can contribute to. Climate change is uh, certainly something that can be leading to a lot of um, despair, mental health issues. Um, we're our programs are committed to fighting defeatism, cynicism, despair. Our our motto at Green Valley Project is nature is in our hands, and there's nothing better to increase a, a sense of hope and efficacy than picking up a shovel and planting a tree and seeing it grow and flourish. So what we're doing um, for the volunteers in the younger ages on the workforce side, um, younger people, as well as, you know, um, young adults at the very vulnerable 18 to 25 range can come to the crew and get paid employment and learn how to do professional ecological restoration work. And these are not skills that can be uh, offshored or replaced by technology very easily. These jobs um, are rooted in place in native knowledge and expertise. They can instill pride, belonging and accomplishment and they're hopeful and necessary and we don't ever want a shortage of workers who repair our ecosystem. 
not always glamorous, but a huge sense of purpose in doing it, especially in a land in a, on a land where the young person's grown up and, and learned about throughout their life. Something I find really interesting here is how there's already connections between what you and, and Amanda have said about the relationship between someone who works in this space and the trees that they that they plant or the nature that they've impacted. And that's something that seems very transcendent beyond the, the population that you're talking about. So I find that really interesting and worth emphasizing here. Laura, I'm going to turn back to you now. It's time to talk about Fire with Fire. Um, I'm hoping you can explain to us how the Fire with Fire initiative seeks to capture indigenous values and practices that are related to fire. And to go one step further, how can the outcomes be used to help prevent or adapt to wildfire writ large? Really, what has the what need has this project filled? Thanks. That's a great questions. And I just want to note that um, both Amanda and Karen, what I'm hearing is part of their projects is really um, the training, the skill building and capacity building. And to link that back to the work that we're doing is um, similar, not as much of a direct focus. Um, well, depends how you look at it. So every project, including the Fire with Fire, has a very strong training and capacity building um, component to it for the communities. And this is actually where this came from. It came, it was developed from a program from the federal government called the Building Regional Adaptation um, Climate Expertise. And our take on that was we wanted to develop the capacity and the expertise in the Indigenous communities to be able to adapt to climate change. And how we saw that was through one of the major risks. So it's thematic. Fire with Fire is thematic, but it allows people to learn skills. And I'll just describe those in a second. Learn skills that are going to um, hopefully help them with adapting to fire with fire in their communities, pardon me, fire in their communities, but also be able to translate those skills into other risks, climate risks. So that's one, it has multiple benefits. So indigenous ways of living with fire are, val we can learn a lot from them as we move forward in a new fire regime. But a lot of this knowledge is very hard to come by because of the way knowledge is shared culturally and because a lot of it is held by elders, some of whom will no longer be with us for very long. Um, and just the nature of how knowledge is shared and has been oral in the past, it is difficult then to get that in, into a policymaker's desk. So what we're doing with this pilot is we have been teaching the communities a tool and it's participatory video. It's one tool. You could also do this with participatory narratives, um, maybe photographs, photo voice, there's, there's other ways. The idea is, is we're youth and other members, so many of them are land staff and technicians, are learning how to interview, document, and then share those outcomes with the permission of the communities. So that might look like um, bringing the the forest, the provincial forest or the state forest people together or federal forest people together and understanding about these specific indigenous ways of fire, not just how the classic burns were done in the past, but also what do they value? What is fire? What does fire mean to them? 
And is there a different way of looking at fire and the risks as we move forward? And I would just want to give a very, very interesting example quickly because we have focused so much on infrastructure and saving infrastructure. And I was at, I had the privilege of being with a family at a ceremony and there was bad smoke. This was two, two years ago. There was terrible smoke actually coming out of Glacier National Park in Waterton. So that's where our two, our two countries collide, um, shared through wildfire smoke. And I asked the family if they were worried. It was a teepee encampment and they said, well, no, if it burns down, if our homes burn down, we'll move. This isn't our culture. It's just stuff. As long as we're safe, it'll be okay. And this is not the type of conversation I would be having around our fire pit. Of course, we would all be worried about our, um, so I guess the question is when, when do you start looking at different value points and changing how fire management is done based on these other ways and other perceptions? And this is what the fire with fire program is inviting. I find that also really exciting, just knowing how um, different indigenous communities around the world all have their own value systems and have probably dealt with these challenges in ways that are very relevant to the resources that are, are housed locally in all different places around the world. So this also feels very translatable. And so I just wanted to make that note. Thank you for sharing. Um, Karen, I'm gonna jump back to you now for a moment. Um, and while we're on the topic of fire here, can you discuss how the crew's work contributes to wildfire prevention specifically, you know, and if there are any ongoing projects or initiatives that you have in this space that you'd like to mention, feel free. Sure, sure. Well, in, in our ecosystem, um, a lot of the more flammable vegetation is um, the non-native invasive species. So by restoring ecosystems to health, we are creating more fire resilient um, forests and other other e ecosystems. Um, that's just key, and there's a huge amount of work to do in that area. <laughs> but so some of it is more skilled. We're working with biologists. The teenagers are getting you know really expert guidance. In other times, it really is just um, doing weed whacking or or brush chipping, which is something that land management agencies um, and, and whether of different levels of government pay for, and that is where we can pay our our crew giving getting them. Giving Check as they do this work. So it is really a lot of it is just basic manual labor, but it's manual labor with a purpose. And we're trying very hard to help the young participants um, at whatever level they're at really understand the purpose of what they're doing and get their literacy up. We also do small tree felling in forests for forest thinning. I know that some of these methods are becoming more controversial and we're waiting for the good science. Um, Maybe we'll be expanding to fire with fire, doing prescribed burns. That's something that we're looking at right now because I think that's going to be, we see how necessary that's going to be. Um, and one of our signature programs is a, a program that provides on site brush chipping of um, hazardous fuel dead wood for landowners right on their property. And we get paid for that from CAL FIRE. So it's fire prevention funding, but landowners, especially in the urban wildlife, wild land interface wooey um, and have who have all this dead brush can get it taken care of and shipped so it doesn't prevent provide a hazard and so we have a chipper and it's just a really uh, great day of work for young people and can really make a difference in the community 
That's that's awesome. I love that you were able to provide a few different examples there, really speaking to the different options that are here. There's clearly not a one size fits all, no. which is something that I think really is, again, you know, transcending all the conversations that we're having here today. Amanda, I'm going to jump back to you now and get back to an initiative that you referenced um, early on in your intro. Um, the Spokanaby project of the Lands Council is a partnership with the city of Spokane. Can you explain more about this project and how it's helping vulnerable urban communities? Yeah, thanks. So the city of Spokane has a goal to reach 40% canopy cover by 2030. Um, and the city does not on its own have the capacity probably to reach that goal. And so um, there is a, there's a practice, a historical practice called redlining um, that occurred here in the United States. And, and that was where creditworthy applicants were denied a housing loan in certain neighborhoods because of the color of their skin. And if you overlay those historic maps, we don't have this practice anymore. Um, of course, the Fair Housing Act has, has stopped that long ago. But if you um, overlay these maps with maps of the urban canopy of urban forest, uncoincidentally, um, areas where these practices occurred, um, well, I'd say, yeah, it, yeah, it, it coincides with a lack of canopy cover. Um, and so we are working by reaching out to those neighborhoods um, and offering free street trees um, in that little parking strip. So between the sidewalk and the road, there's sometimes this little grassy strip. And that, believe it or not, is a public space. A lot of times cities have that as part of their stormwater infrastructure. Um, it, it is, is a working part of, of our cities. And so by putting street trees in that area, not only is it taking up stormwater, mitigating pollution to our aquifer and to our river, um, but those trees provide um, aesthetic value, they increase property value, they provide shade during the summer to reduce um, cooling costs during, you know, these record high temperatures that we've been having over the summers. Um, and we are also able to meet people where they're at. And so we're not just offering this program to homeowners. If people are renting a home, they should still have the benefit of having a tree in that public space in front of their home. Um, we also are able to give people credits on their utility bill if in while installing this, they agree also to take out some of the lawn and put in drought resistant plants. Um, they will get a credit on their city of Spokane water bill because of the, um, you know, the lower water needs of those plants. And in order to satisfy the needs of that, we need to check and make sure that those plants have been watered. And so um, the city doesn't have the capacity to do that. We need to work with the residents to agree to take care of those plants. Um, and in order to do so, we hire ambassadors that are people that live in that neighborhood so that it's neighbor to neighbor speaking to each other about caring for these trees and plants um, and offering to help one another. And so, again, I think this is a, a little bit of an out of the box way of thinking where we saw this, this sort of stretched thin capacity um, that, that, that was occurring that was stopping us from reaching our shared goals. And, you know, the Lands Council thought that we could step in and sort of assist and not only just on our own, but by working with the community and hiring them to lead the way on that. That's awesome. Thank you so much for sharing that other amazing project. We are officially in our speed round for this panel as well. We have just over five minutes left. So 
please uh, be cognizant of that as I get through, because I want to ask at least one more question to each of you, because again, I could I could continue this for hours. Um, I'm going to jump back to Laura now and ask you your first speed round question, if you will. Um, consider this, you know, again, once again, wetting the audience's appetite to learn more, hopefully after this session today. So Laura, the Resilience Institute engages with communities to help them develop local early action plans or LEAPs. How do you work with community members, including youth and elders, to develop these locally relevant strategies? Oh, I'm so glad you asked that question. So the and it and it does link to all of the work that we're doing on fire too. Um, a local early action plan has been an umbrella activity for us because what it's allowed us to do is to engage communities. And I say communities, but it also um, it could be stakeholders. It could be a subset of stakeholders in dialogue. Um, we start with some really basic education on climate change based on what they want to know. We meet people where they're at, and then we talk about what they're worried about. We have this dialogue. And so from that point, we develop a local early action plan. And this is best for not for big cities and, and for organizations that can do and implement adaptation plans. What we found is that there's some really great adaptation plans out there, but due to capacity, due to timing, all sorts of things, they don't get implemented. And by the time somebody can implement them, they're obsolete. A local early action plan is a scaled back version of that, where the community, we together with the community, define three top risks, three strategies to each of those risks that include technical strategies, so the scientific technical strategies, the best that are out there for that particular um, risk, as well as local innovations. So what do the farmers know? How can we implement those local innovations? What do the Indigenous people know about? How, how, do, we, how do we actually really use those local innovations? And so we, it's an iterative learning process. We like to learn while doing, so we'll identify an uh, early action and we'll actually use that as we're moving along this whole process. And what's really great about this is it's, really, it's, a, it's a program that then flourishes from that. Um, we define other activities, we work together, the youth get involved, and it's just been an umbrella program that I, I, I'm a big, big fan of it, as you can tell. I know that's great. I'm glad we had a moment to touch on it. Uh, I know there's more information online if folks are interested in learning more. Um, Amanda, your speed round question. You know, there's so many cool projects that the Lands Council does, your biochar project, your fungi project. Again, all of these things available online. I'm going to give you your speed round question about beavers because you asked for it. OK, mm -hmm. um, I am going to ask you about the fact that your organization has worked with engineering students to develop and deploy beaver dam analogs in watersheds. I find this really interesting, and I was wondering if you could just tell us a couple of lines about how these efforts contribute to riparian restoration. Yeah, so um, I could talk forever about beavers, but I won't. Um, but beavers, the dams they create, uh, as I mentioned, are um, they're the only animal that can engineer an ecosystem besides humans, and so these are really important wetland creators. Um, but we can't always 
get beavers to build their dams right where we need them. And so um, we have started building what are called beaver dam analogs. And that is, you know, kind of a poor human simulacra of a beaver dam where we put posts um, vertically across the stream profile and weave material in it. And a series of these create sort of a mini beaver dam complex. Um, and we work with our local university here, Gonzaga University, as you mentioned, um, at the engineering department uses our um, BDA, Beaver Dam Analog Restoration Sites, as um, their sort of class project each semester. And so those engineering students look at the um, hydrology of the area, the energy and velocity of the flow, and they make a recommendation of how many and where we are going to install those BDAs. We're actually installing a few in uh, three weeks with that class. Um, and then oftentimes this um, raises the water table a little bit, and so we use these around our riparian planting areas so that the water table is raised, which increases the survival rates of our trees that we plant there. Um, and oftentimes if there are beaver families already somewhere in that, that system, in that watershed, a beaver will um, disperse, you know, young beaver, and maybe we'll see one of our BDA complexes and think that is a dam waiting for me to uh, finish it. And so oftentimes it can um, have that, uh, long-term intended effect, which is that the beavers sort of take it on and um, continue building those wetlands. And you can awesome. talk to me more about beavers anytime, but I'll stop there. <laughs> <laughs> I loved our conversation about it before, so I know that's true. Um, Karen, your speed round question, I'm just hoping you can, you know, finish off here by telling us a few words about how the crew and the Green Valley Project engage and benefit girls, young women, or other vulnerable youth communities. Sure, sure. And pretty soon we're going to engage beavers. I'm <laughs> very inspired. <laughs> um, well, you know, traditionally the hard manual labor has attracted boys. Um, the um, communication, community organizing, kind of caring has, has attracted girls. And we uh, work very hard to um, mix it up and to reach out to, to a young person who may not see themselves in a certain role and help them or mentor them into that role. So it's a, it's a long, slow process, but we're doing it. We're doing it by providing role models and mentors. Um, as far as uh, more vulnerable communities, I mean, conservation corps traditionally have in, uh, involved young people who really, really need that paycheck or maybe really need a direction. We're continuing in that tradition. Um, especially focusing on, you know, people who, who, who aren't in college or aren't in a necessarily a career path job. It's extremely vulnerable time in their lives. Um, and I think lastly, I'll just say that we're really engaging with the public schools. I think this uh, collaboration has been a, a theme today and collaboration. If you're working with youth with your public school district to make sure that they can, they working with them to funnel youth that they think could benefit from the program is huge because I mean, that, that's where the kids are. I'm so glad that you're thinking about this and incorporating it into the work that you do. It's clearly very important and we do have to move on to our next panel, but I do want to make sure that I give each of you a last second, maybe, maybe 15, 20, 30 seconds mm -hmm. to give your final piece of advice to anyone listening in, looking to maybe work on their own forest management or community management and resilience wherever they're located. Um, so your final thoughts, final few seconds, Laura, I'll start with you. Okay, easy. Um, collaborate as much as possible with the locals and don't assume that we know 
what the values are and then understand better what the values are and then weave those values into forest management and fire management going forward. Wonderful. Thank you, Laura. Amanda? I'd say um, leave your ego behind. It's less important who's doing the work and more important that the work gets done and there's a lot of work to do. Thank you. And finally, of course, Karen. I would just say that look at youth as potential leaders, as definite partners, help to build their eco-literacy and their um, capacity to contribute, and we will help forge a generation of young people that will be stewards of the land and make a huge, huge difference in our future starting very soon. This podcast is derived from audio recordings of SGOE's Innovation Station virtual event series. The views expressed in the preceding episode are those of the featured innovators and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Secretary's Office of Global Women's Issues, the U.S. Department of State, or the U.S. government. For more information on the Secretary's Office of Global Women's Issues, its initiatives, and programs, please visit the State Department website at www.state.gov.